from time to time, people ask me, are you a Calvinist? And um, happily, the answer is yes. Uh, some of you are too young to appreciate Calvin and Hobbes. It's an old comic strip, uh, and I've long enjoyed uh, the wisdom and truth and deep philosophizing that comes through a comic strip like this. I'll, I'll, I was going to say, I'll let you read it, but maybe I should, should read it. The problem is the very back is a little too short for me, but Calvin, who is such a wise, young child, some of you have children like this, right? He says, the problem with people is they don't look at the big picture. Eventually, we're each going to die. Our species will go extinct. The sun will explode, and the universe will collapse. Existence is not only temporary, it's pointless. We're all doomed, and worse, nothing matters. And his favorite tiger stuffed animal says, I see why people don't like to look at the big picture. And then Calvin wisely says, well, it puts a bad day in perspective. There's more honest philosophy and uh, maybe capturing some of what many in our culture feel today uh, than we would want to recognize in Calvin's words. Aren't you thankful, though, we're not actually left to doom and gloom? Aren't you glad that we have not been called uh, as a human population to try to salvage life on planet Earth. My heart actually yearns for those who feel the, the hopelessness that even this comic strip reflects, who truly believe the world could end within a few decades if we don't take control of the climate right now. Some who believe that, that if we don't wrest control from whatever political party is in control at the moment, life as we know it will end. And I'm not trying to minimize the significant forces of evil and foolishness that are loose on this planet right now. But God is giving us a, a very different perspective. That's part of the reason that we put together beautiful psalms of encouragement that remind us the Lord is King. That's part of the reason we chose a selection of hymns, both old and new, to sing that remind us that the Lord is King and it fits beautifully with the scripture passage before us. And I want to invite you to return with me again to the book of Romans, chapter 13, Romans 13. Now, Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, a, a few decades after the Lord had been crucified and had risen again and ascended on high. And we've been working our way through this New Testament letter and we're just going to look at the first seven verses this morning, and you can see from the title slide on the screen that we are dealing with some big themes, the sovereignty of God, our submission to government, and of course, the gospel. So let's read this portion together, and then I'm going to pray, and you join me in asking for God's help that we could understand uh, the, the powerful truth that the Lord gives us here in Romans 13. Follow along as I read. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. And if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, as we open your word together on this day, we look to you that once again our hearts and souls would be illuminated by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Though there are some things that would seem very plain and easy to understand, we also recognize that the nature of Holy Scripture is that it is your eternal word. It is your perfect word. It is your life-giving word. And you have taught us that to understand it, we need the illumination of the Spirit. And so I pray that you would shine that light of truth into our hearts, that we may see it as you have given it, and then that you would move our wills, that we would respond in obedience and faith. And having responded in faith, that we would go from this place determined to live it out for your glory and for our good, for the cause of Christ in this desperately needy world, for the eternal riches and rewards that you offer to those who trust you, obey you, and live faithfully for you. There are many forces at work in our world today, but there's not one of them that exists outside of your authority. And while it is difficult for us to understand why you would even grant permission to some of the evil forces to do what they do, we trust you, even as we sang a moment ago, that you are able to take the greatest of evils and turn them for our good. The greatest evil ever done was the execution of your only son on a criminal's cross. But oh, how we marvel that you took that great evil and accomplished the greatest good. So if you are able to do that, how much more the lesser evils of history and even this moment. And we pray these things, oh Lord, not seeking to minimize any of the evil on the loose at the moment, but seeking to maximize your glory and to grow our faith to believe that as the Redeemer and King, you will turn even these darkest of evils for your glory and for our good. We trust you and pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna give you a context, uh, a little bit of historical context for Romans 13 as we wade into this passage. Uh, first of all, historically, and then even just because we've been out of Romans for a little while to kind of bring some things back together. You should know that Paul wrote this letter to the saints at Rome during the early years of Nero. Nero is that wicked emperor who's most famous for setting the whole city on fire, right, and openly persecuting 
uh, Christians and doing horrific things. Historically, we're not at that moment. These are the first five years, we believe, of Nero's reign, where, which actually, with a you know, fancy Latin term, are referred to as the five good years. And then it went south for a whole lot of people. When we come to Romans 13.1 and read, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, it's important for us to know that Paul gets it, that whether in Rome or in Jerusalem, there are powerful people who have control who are not God-fearing people. He understands that they're not waking up each day saying, what is the will of the Lord that I should do it and honor him and bless these people under my rule and reign? So from the religious power brokers in Jerusalem right through to Nero, it's not an easy time. It's not open persecution as it will be in a few short years, but the people of God have been suffering persecution. And remember, even Paul's testimony includes that, that dark uh, season where before his conversion, he openly persecuted the church and did great harm as he wrote to Timothy in that letter. So we haven't come yet uh, to the really hard years. Uh, we haven't come to the, the great fire uh, that history records for us in Rome, but tensions are rising. Now, I also want to tie it back to Romans 12, and uh, you can flip over one page if you want to and look at verses 1 and 2 again, because I think it's important that we understand maybe some of what's in Paul's heart. Remember back at chapter 12, he had said, do not be conformed to this age. There's a spirit that characterizes uh, every generation that is not following after God, that rebels against him. And some of you memorized that verse long ago as I did. Don't be conformed to this world or the spirit of this age, but be transformed. And Paul had said the transformation is, is a transformation of mind. It's a transformation of the heart and the soul. And, and then we even spent a couple of weeks just moving through a series, rapid fire uh, instructions from Paul and touching almost every area of life we could think of. That's how the gospel impacts us. Jesus doesn't save us just to secure eternal life for us and then kind of say, hey, I'll catch up to you at the end of your life. No, he gives us that gift of eternal life and assures us of that destiny uh, and, and ties it back to the way we live every day. And so there's a gospel ethic, if you will, that Romans 12 has been highlighting for us, showing us what kind of people we ought to be. So as one author notes, perhaps Paul may have inserted this section before us in chapter 13 as a guard against those who might draw the wrong conclusions from his concern that Christians avoid conformity to this age. Because it's easy to look at a text like that and then look at the immediate circumstances and basically say, I'm checking out of this worldly age. And, and God doesn't give us permission to check out Neither does he give us permission to just openly rebel against it. And so there are some principles here before us that are really important. The same author, Doug Moo, for what it's worth, uh, a commentary, uh, commentator and author who's been very helpful in my, in my personal study through Romans, and you've heard me cite him before, but he goes on to say, to the degree that this age is dominated by Satan and sin, Christians must resolutely refuse to adopt its values. Romans 12, 1 and 2. But the world in which Christians continue to live out their bodily existence has not been wholly abandoned by God. As a manifestation of his common grace, God has established in this world certain institutions such as marriage and government 
that have a positive role to play even after the inauguration of the new age. And, and I think that's a very helpful word of perspective as we enter Romans 13. So as you can see from the screen, the first major heading I want you to think about is that we find in this chapter a principle of submission. And I use the term principle intentionally because it's not an absolute command, and we're gonna see some exceptions to the rule as you were, but here's, here's the key word for us uh, to consider. Be subject which is a command and instruction for us to arrange ourselves under, in this context, governing authority. But I want you to think through how uh, you're probably already aware of a, of a number of examples from the scriptures where this same term appears in other relationships. There's, there is a principle in the Christian community of being subject or submitting ourselves Uh, The greatest of which is the Lord Jesus in his incarnation as a child. Luke 2.51 tells us that he subjected himself to his earthly parents. Then you come to passages like Ephesians 5 where we read that the church submits to Christ. Believers submit one to another. Wives submit to husbands. 1 Corinthians 16 tells us believers submit to their leaders. 1 Peter 5 tells us the younger submit to the older. Titus 2 says servants submit to their masters. So you see a principle of submission that just runs throughout the Christian faith. It's important for us to keep that in mind lest we kind of look at this in isolation. When the Lord, through Paul, says be subject to governing authorities. It reminds us of the words of Jesus himself when he was put to the test about paying taxes and he he answered so wisely and simply, didn't he? Mark 12, 17 tells us Jesus said to those who were trying to trip him up, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Case closed. Next question. 1 Peter 2 also records a similar word of instruction so we have the apostle paul and the apostle peter saying to the church and let me read first peter 2 13 be subject there's our there's our concept for the lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of god that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people We'll come to that same thought of doing good in Romans 13. Now, the second word that Paul throws out is a negative. Do not resist is the negative command. And that has to do with asserting yourself in the face of authority. You know, this, this gets a little tricky for us in the context of this great nation that the vast majority of us are citizens. In. I mean, we've been given rights that the vast majority of the world doesn't enjoy and the right to elect our representatives and send them to Washington to, at least in theory, you know, do what we want them to do. I mean, what a grand privilege. And and so we're not talking about, you know, you should never show up to an important meeting and voice your opinion even strongly. No, we're talking about actually arraying yourself in a way where you're just like, I'm just against the government, whatever they do. They're so evil and so corrupt. And so we adapt Uh, this attitude or adopt this attitude of resistance and Paul is saying that's not what the people of God do. We don't assert 
ourselves in the face of the authority. And so there are actually two different terms that Paul uses. They are both translated with the English word resist. Um, and it just has to do with this asserting ourselves or actively opposing uh, power. Um, now, very quickly, what's the expression of submission? This is interesting. Generally speaking, look at verse 3 with me. Do what is good. Now, Matt spoke to this very point from 1 Peter 3 last week. We didn't plan that out in advance. We didn't strategize. Uh, but it's, it, it, that's just demonstration that it actually appears in multiple places through the scriptures. Good as it's used here in this context, as it was used in 1 Peter 3, is a very general term. It, it can refer to a 1,000 things or 10,000. Uh, and as the Spirit of God works in our individual hearts, he will impress upon us individually certain things that we ought to do. So it might be something as simple as uh, being a blessing to your neighbor who has a particular need, or it might be more of a, a community cause that you get behind, or even national efforts that we make, uh, you know, big issues like right to life. I mean, it, it could be 10,000 different things. So good is a very general word. I was thinking this week of how the Lord said to the prophet Jeremiah, who was living in a moment in Israel's history where things had not gone well and many people had rebelled against God, even out of Israel. The people that God had rescued miraculously and given his extraordinary promises of blessing, but they had rebelled against God. And Jeremiah, who is also known as the weeping prophet, watched his homeland be destroyed and thousands upon thousands of people carried into exile, many of them still remaining rebellious. And yet the Lord comes to him as one of those who had been displaced and lost so much. And the Lord says to him, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. These are the enemies. This is like if we got invaded by Russia or China and then carried off as captives into one of those two countries. And I can imagine the Lord saying to you, pray for the welfare of Beijing, you know, while you're in exile, saying, but I want to go home. That's what he's saying to Jeremiah. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You know, wherever God plants you, whether it be as a citizen of this nation or a citizen of any other nation, you should do everything within your power to be a blessing to that country. You, we should do everything in our power to be a blessing to the city that we're a part of. We're gonna talk in the family meeting in just a little while about some of the summer effort and outreach that we're gonna make, and it includes things like this, and we hope that all of you will be excited about it. But not just waiting for the church to you know, put together some, some program of good, but that you say, Lord, use me today. What is there one little good thing that I could do? So that's the general command here. Now specifically, Paul gets down to the place where a lot of us are uncomfortable, right? Specifically, he says in verses six and seven, because of this, and we're gonna come back to understand more of what the this has reference to, you also pay taxes. And then he mentions revenue. And, the, and those are two different terms that probably refer to two different kinds of taxes. Um, perhaps in our context, it would be uh, easy to apply and understand if, we, if Paul were writing this to us, he would say, hey, you know what? Pay your federal taxes. Yes, pay, pay the state tax. Yeah, pay the sales tax. Pay the gas tax. Quit whining, quit complaining. I mean, call your representative, but you know, don't, don't be ugly. Don't be sinfully angry about these things. I mean, in many ways, it's just like, it, it's, a, it's a reflection of Jesus' words that I just quoted from Mark. 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And by the way, Caesar and Nero, Herod, they were not elected representatives. They didn't wake up on any morning saying, what will be a great blessing to the people I rule today? No, they kind of woke up with selfish ambitions and desires. And the taxes then were exorbitant, and they are now. But isn't it good to know that our God understands all of this? And remember, our money is his money, right? So at the end of the day, if he wants you to write a check out of his checking account to pay your taxes, this is not a hard thing. Taxes and revenue. Now, it is possible, a little historical note, I found this interesting, that it's possible that some of the Roman Christians were a part of a growing tax resistance in Rome because Tacitus, the Roman historian, uh, has made specific notes uh, that at this period of time, we, we can't date it exactly to say, oh yeah, that must have been what Paul was thinking, but it overlaps in the, in, because we think Paul wrote this you know, in the mid-50s AD and there was a bit of a resistance growing uh, in Rome, specifically over what they described as indirect taxes, and it actually culminated in a tax revolt in the late 50s. Maybe Paul has heard a little bit about this, and he's trying to just say, don't get involved there. And when we come to the end of this paragraph in, in Romans, one of the questions I think we need to ask seriously is, what do we want to be known for? I'll leave that for just a moment. We'll come back to it. But then Paul goes on, it's kind of like he said taxes specifically, but backing up from that, he then uses the words honor and respect. And it seems, again, in its context, he's talking about your governing authorities. And when it's possible, we need to give them the respect and honor that the office deserves. There's an interesting story back in Acts 23. Um, Acts is actually the book of the New Testament that precedes Romans, so we're not too many pages from it. So turn back a little bit, find Acts 23, and Paul's standing before the council in Jerusalem. Now this is a religious authority. They are not friends of the gospel movement that Jesus has launched, and some of these characters were a part of, of the condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus not too many uh, years before this. But he is called into defense of what he's done and they are saying to him, um, you know, basically, we don't want you to do this. And uh, there's, a, there's a moment, verse two says, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Now listen to this. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written. And now he's actually quoting Old Testament law. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, let's be honest what Paul had just said describing uh, uh, this high priest is absolutely true. I mean, in a sense, he's using terminology that Jesus used to describe some of these same religious leaders, right? But in that moment and in that context, he actually humbles himself because what he has spoken did not honor, did not respect the governing authority. Several months ago at the conclusion of a NASCAR race, 
there was a little misunderstanding and out of that a euphemism uh, came into existence that is now widely circulated to express opposition to President Biden. I see it on bumper stickers as you do. I've seen it on flags and banners as, as you have. I hear it chanted in large gatherings as you do. But in light of what we're reading here, should a follower of Jesus who is serious about not only obeying the clear commands of this text, but who should be serious about advancing the gospel, ever speak or display those words? It's easy to get caught up in the fervor, especially when, and I would be among those who would say, this administration has made a shambles of what was already a shambles. Be that as it may, God does not want his people to speak in such a way that dishonors and disrespects even a poor leader. What do we want to be known for? Now, we are privileged by God in this nation to disagree with our governing authorities. But there's not only a, a right way to do that in the system that we live in, there's a right way to do that in light of who our Savior is. We're never free to dishonor, even when we disagree. Now, let's look at the motives for submission. This is, this is significant. Go back to verse two of Romans 13, please. If you're still in Acts, then go back and find your place in, in Romans 13. But look at verse two. First of all, he just says straight up to avoid God's judgment. That's sobering, isn't it? For those who resist will incur God's judgment. What? Yeah. I mean, our heavenly father just stepped into this and basically said, kids, listen to me. I'm really serious. You want trouble with me down the road? Do the stuff I'm telling you not to do. This is God talking. He, he's not trying to say you're going to have trouble with the, the ruler. Uh, he'll, he'll kind of get to that in just a moment. And he's using terminology where, as one author notes, four of the five other occurrences of this particular terminology in the book of Romans refer to the eschatological judgment. Eschatology has to do with the last things, the final judgment. So it makes really good sense that, you know, he's not shifting gears out of that. He's saying, you need to think about the end of your days when you stand before Jesus. What will you say to him if your whole life has been devoted to, uh, to resisting and dishonoring and rebelling? Well, he's telling you straight up, mm, you're, you're going to incur God's judgment. Second motive, verses three and four, he gives us some perspective on, on governing authorities. They've actually been designed and positioned by God uh, to avenge wrong when it is done. And he says he is an avenger who carries out God's wrath. Now, Paul has spoken of that eschatological wrath back in chapter 2, verse 5, and of God's wrath in the present, chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, this author who I've been quoting goes on to say, now he adds the thought that civil government can be an agent of the divine wrath when it punishes wrongdoing. And, and hang on, I'm, we're going to get to that place, like some of you are already there, like, yeah, but what about Putin or what about our own government when they legislate things we will get to the exceptions remember this is a principle of submission so we want to avoid civil punishment we don't really want to be on the wrong side of justice from God's perspective and even government when it is consistent with God's rule of law thirdly for the sake of conscience look at verse 5 for the sake of conscience it is necessary for Christians to submit to government um, 
as long as we are able for the honor of God as an act of faith that he is the one who has put these things in motion, set these things uh, in order for the good of his people, the good of his uh, image bearers. So those are some of the motives, very quickly, limitations of our submission. There are two big categories. The first is when submission means doing what God forbids. That would be a contradiction, wouldn't it? There are two examples that come to mind, and there are actually many in the scriptures, but let me give you two of the more well-known ones. Do you remember in the story of Exodus where God is bringing us up to speed since Joseph has died and, and the Hebrew children have been multiplying in Egypt and there's a Pharaoh who doesn't remember who Joseph was. We're way beyond that. And he is watching Israel multiply so rapidly that he pronounces an edict that all male Hebrew babies should be put to death. And in Exodus 1, you find the story of two Hebrew midwives who are heroines. I mean, they are noble. And we'll get in line one day to meet them when we all arrive in heaven and say, tell us more. We heard like the, the very little portion of it. What was that really like? Well, those heroic midwives refused to abort those male Hebrew babies, and it's comical too because they made up a story. Like, we can't get there fast enough. These Hebrew moms, they are strong, and boy, you know, like the birthing process just happens, which that raises another question of like, what should we say or not say, you know, when we're resisting authorities? But clearly for them to do the thing that Pharaoh said would be disobedience to God. There's a second story, and you know this one well too, in Daniel 3, again, a time of exile, where Daniel and his his three Hebrew friends, those four young men, were, were uh, exiled uh, to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, makes this big decree and calls all of his people to bow down and worship, and the three Hebrew boys. It's interesting. Where's Daniel in that story? I don't know. Maybe off on assignment. Um, but the three young men that we know uh, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do they do? They stand, not bowing down, can't do that, uh, submission to Nebuchadnezzar would mean doing what God has forbidden. And they seemingly pay a great price, don't they? Nebuchadnezzar is in a rage. He stokes his fiery furnace you know, to extraordinary heat. Even the guards who toss those three young men into the fire, they die uh, from the intensity of the heat. But the young men survive. And there's a fourth person who appears in the fire with them. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, we believe. It's just a glorious story. Well, there's an example of a time to say to your authority, sorry, I will not submit. To submit to you would be disobedience to God. There's a second category when submission means neglecting what God commands. And it is important for us to differentiate. Both are kinds of obedience, but submission sometimes means neglecting what God commands. If you continue reading in uh, the prophecy of Daniel, you come to chapter six. And again, there's a group of people that have it out for Daniel, and this is many years after Nebuchadnezzar, and now the ruler in charge is, is Darius. He's not a follower of God. He's not a faithful uh, believer. And without thinking through the full consequences, the enemies of Daniel get him to pass a decree that no one should pray to any other God, that it should all be you know, ruler worship. What does Daniel do? goes home, as he always has on every day, opens the window toward Jerusalem, kneels in prayer, and the bad guys were waiting. They're like, we got him. Because, you know, this guy is so predictable. We know this is exactly what he will do. That's why we got the decree passed. Darius, throw him in the lion's den. 
Daniel goes into the lion's den. There's another miraculous deliverance. It doesn't turn out well for the bad guys in the end of the story. You can read that whole thing in Daniel 6. But for him to neglect prayer would be disobedience to God. It's curious, too, that he opens the window as he always had. Did God require that? The story kind of pushes us that way. Could he have prayed, you know, in secret? Probably. I mean, Jesus even said, when you pray, don't make a big public show of it. Go into your closet. So we, we wrestle with some of that. But I don't think it's that Daniel's trying to make a big show. I think it's like, well, I've done this every day for however long he had done it. I'm not changing it. I will continue to pray in faith, a heart toward God, and even heart toward Jerusalem. A third story in Acts 5, 29 this is in the early days after the resurrection and ascension and Peter and the apostles are preaching and I mean Jerusalem is just being turned upside down and the high priest and the Sanhedrin meet and they say to these men, you must not preach about this Jesus anymore and they answer him, them very simply, we must obey God rather than men. So these are just a, a few examples from several throughout the scriptures where God actually expects his people to disobey the local authority. So those would be some qualifications that we want to hang over this principle. And that leads us in the last place to another big heading and that is the law of sovereignty. Now go back to verse one of Romans 13 with me and notice a couple of key thoughts. First of all, governing authorities are instituted by God. Do you see the words from God and then instituted by God? That means actually that God is the one who conceived of this in the first place. He's the one that set governing authorities into their place initially. Now, good government is what God has designed and like all of God's good ideas, government has also been hijacked and twisted to the hurt of humanity through the ages. The sin is not God's. The sin is always ours. And even in our day and age, we see what unchecked evil is capable of doing. And so when God is laying out this principle, it's with a view that the government that he has actually instituted would serve his, uh, his righteous purposes. But it's important for us, again, as a general principle, look at verse 2, that, it, that we need to guard against resisting what God has appointed. There's another strong term that says God has ordered these things. He's decreed it. That's where the passage that Matt read before we receive the offering from Daniel 2.21 is, is so important for us to always remember. It's God who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God really is behind it all. Governing authorities are instituted by God. Now, here's part of God's design too. Look at verse four. They are God's servants, ministers of God. And when he says they're God's servants, he's using the term that we translate in other places as deacons. We love our deacons here. I mean, these men serve so faithfully and, and sacrificially, mostly behind the scenes, but some of you have known their care for you. That's the way it should be. And God actually designed governing authorities to serve in a similar way. It, it really should not be a top-down form of authority and rule. 
It really should be a bottom-up, and that's why on occasion where we find a, a, a true uh, local or, or even national figure who serves the people, I mean, we're like, that's our dude. We love her. Uh, it's just such an anomaly in this day and age, but that is God's design. Then he uses the term ministers of God, and there really is a sacred component to this kind of authority. And isn't it good to know that God will hold every single authority from every single age accountable? I do not say this lightly, but for many governing authorities, there will be hell to pay. We will not see justice in our lifetime for all kinds of things, but justice will be served. It either has been at the cross already, and what a horrific price Christ paid for justice to be served, or it will be served in the eternal torment of hell forever. Rest your heart, weary ones. Nobody's getting away with anything. We pray that God shows mercy on a whole list of people from our present generation who have turned justice upside down, who have extorted the ordinary working class people, not just of our nation, but the nations of the earth. They're not getting away with it. And God never intended it to be that way. Finally, governing authorities are designed to carry out God's purposes. So they're not only God's services, but what he intends, you see a glimpse of this in verse three, is that they would actually be a terror to bad conduct. I mean, it's, hasn't it been amazing, amazing to watch the pendulum of justice swing in, in the last couple of years? Everything from you know, defund police to now we're going, oh, that might not have been such a good idea. And still you have some holdouts, don't you? And, and what, I don't care whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, uh, Libertarian, whatever you are, when crimes are committed and whether it be a jewelry store that is smashed and you know, millions of dollars of merchandise ripped out of the place or individuals followed home and, and robbed or even the miscarriage of justice where like the whole world knows like that is a guy who should stay behind bars but somehow ends up released. It, it doesn't matter what your political stripes are. You're like, that's wrong. And God knows it. And that's not the way he designed it. Look at verse four. They're not only a terror to bad conduct but they're there for your good. For your good. That's what government is supposed to do. Think of what the prophet Isaiah said so long ago. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We know what that is, don't we? But it's not gonna last. Now, let, let's, let's just make a few concluding thoughts. Because we're not left in a place of despair that Calvin and his little tiger friend Hobbes were left. For starters, the world's not just gonna disintegrate and you know, we cease to exist. It is difficult. There's a lot that is wrong in this world at the moment, but it is still God's world. It's still our Father's world. And he has called us to something really significant. And so as we think this through with a view of living it out, I do want you to tie it to the cross and to Christ. Because everything we've had in Romans up until this point is about Christ, his life, his death, the, the power 
uh, of his sacrifice for us, the glory of being justified by faith, not justified by our works, the glory of no condemnation for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the amazement of being adopted by the most high God and indwelt by the Spirit. So now he's bearing witness with our spirits that we really are are the sons of God. The remarkable conclusion to chapter eight where he says, who will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? And then lists all kinds of examples that in our hearts we feel like will separate us from God, but he powerfully concludes, but it's not happening. You're so secure, you're so loved, so completely forgiven, so utterly saved. You're good. But now to live life as he desires us to live, he knows that there are practical implications and like some of the Roman saints may have been struggling with those, you know, those obscure or unfair tax systems, we struggle with the same kind of stuff. I mean, who here just two weeks ago enjoyed either seeing what you had to report that you actually paid in taxes the last year or enjoyed writing a check? I didn't. It, it kills me. Beloved, can I just like vent for a little bit? <laughs> the, there, there's this little distortion where people feel good about a refund. That's the dumbest thing ever. Sorry. They took a whole pile of your money and then go, and here, have a little bit back. So let's stop acting like it's the greatest thing. Where I get it in one sense. I'm happy when I get a refund too, but like we're paying a boatload. But even that's okay. Because for starters, it is our father's finances we're operating with. And second of all, if, if they're stealing from us, they got bigger problems than what I think about them or even what a little community revolt might result. And they're gonna stand before the living God one day and won't that be a glorious moment where he says, let's talk about your tax scale. Oh. <laughs> it's easy to think about this just in the context of, of where we live, but there are brothers and sisters who operate in true tyrannical situations and deadly scenarios on this day. This is bigger than just paying your taxes with a God-honoring spirit. It really does come down to a couple of key questions. What will we be known as? I want to be a really good citizen of this country, to a certain extent a, a patriot, but at the end of the day, I don't want to be known just for my patriotism. I want to be known as a follower of Christ whose humble submission on multiple levels has actually been counter-cultural to a world system that promotes the rebellion and autonomy of individuals who God created to be in relationship with him. Don't you? And what will we be known for? A political narrative that you know, pointed left or right or wherever? Just a political narrative? Or do you want to be known for the gospel of the kingdom. That's a transcendent narrative. You want to be known for a social cause that in and of itself, I'm not saying that all social causes are worthless or pointless or unimportant, but God is calling us to good works that flow out of our understanding of the cross. So what will we be known as and what will we be known for In many ways, he's made it really simple to say, I want you to be known for your good works. I want you to be known for your submission because you're submitted to me that, you know, as a general rule, general principle, you're you're submitting in all kinds of scenarios. And I want you to be known 
as citizens of heaven, followers of Jesus, more than you might be known in our context as flag-waving Americans. I don't want to create a dichotomy that says you can only be this and you can never be that. I, I want to create a sense of what's more important, what's eternally significant. So even this week, I have a home repair to make, and I was disappointed. One of the big gusts of wind came through and uh, pulled my, um, my flag and the, you know, the, the brace holding it to the wall, pulled it right out, of the, right out of the brick. Happy to fly my nation's flag. But more than being known for that, even in my neighborhood or my community, I, and I know that many of you are right there with me, want to be known as a follower of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for your great grace, and that has been shown to us in so many ways, and these are complicated days, and there are complicated issues in front of us, but there's a certain beauty and simplicity about the gospel that makes many of these things come into clear perspective, and we pray to that end. Forgive us for getting caught up in issues and causes that are secondary at best, and some so trivial in light of the cross, in light of the kingdom mission that you have put us on, in light of eternity, that it really is to our shame. Thank you that you're willing to forgive us for those sins and failures and even those missteps. Would you so fire our hearts with an understanding of our Savior and his mighty work on the cross, of your eternal plan and your sovereign rule that we, like the saints who have gone before us, some living at critical moments, would have such clarity and understanding of who you are that we would always choose the right thing. We ask that in our generation you would strengthen us to follow in the steps of those Hebrew midwives, of those young Jewish men who had been exiled, of Peter, of Paul, of Christ himself who lived ever to do your will and to rescue the nations of the earth from the slavery of our sin and the bondage of the evil one. We are privileged to live here in this moment in this country and ask to that end that your blessing would fall upon this nation, that before you restore our economic or political or even judicial strength, you would restore your dominion in the hearts of millions today who have no thought of you, of the Savior, of the gospel. Father, we are in a desperate hour because our natures are so fully corrupted. Forgive us for looking for political solutions to spiritual problems. Would you show mercy on this community and show mercy on our nation? And in our Remarkable history, there have been seasons of great awakening and revival, and we beg you to bring one in our day. Bring it, Lord, where no man could take glory, no church, no denomination, no organization of 
an earthly nature, but where there would be an awesome sense that the Spirit of the living God has poured Himself out in people, in communities, where there was no thought of Him. So have mercy on us. And we ask all of this in the saving name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.